Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered... He will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Sing, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Burst into song, shout for joy, you who are never in labour. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, stretch your tent curtains wide, do not hold back. Lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes, for you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. Do not be afraid, you will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace, you will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. And then jumping to verse 11. Afflicted city, lashed by storms and not comforted, I will rebuild you with stones of turquoise, your foundations with lapis lazuli. I will make your battlements of rubies, your gates of sparkling jewels and all your walls of precious stones. All your children will be taught by the Lord and great will be their peace. In righteousness you will be established. Tyranny will be far from you. You will have nothing to fear. Terror will be far removed. It will not come near you. We are taking a month. And in that month we're going to look back to uh, four vision value statements that we wrote down on on, on a very small piece of paper um, for nearly five years ago. We're journeying towards our fifth birthday. It's in November, so we're four years old. But uh, there's many of us, as we look around the room, in God's goodness and by his grace, that we're not here at the beginning. And that is brilliant. That is what we longed for. That's what we hoped for. Um, but we want to spend a month looking at four um, values that we have as a church. The first one is the gospel. I found this super, I just wanted to find some super picture, and I came across this little dude with a cool hat on, um, looking into the future. Um, and so I put it up there to say, this is what we want to do. We want to look forward to see what would God do? What kind of church do we want to be? But to do that, we need to go back and look at these four uh, values that we have as a church. The first one is the gospel. 
It's our fountainhead. It's what gives us life. It's our foundation upon which we build. It's the center upon which we want to gather. It's the message that we have to share. But that's me saying that with passion and paracetamol. Um, If you're new, I want to show you why we believe that is so important, that it shapes everything we do. We we use words like culture. We use expressions like it's the air we breathe. We say it's our DNA. And uh, I want to show you why, because it's at the very centre of the Bible. It's what the Bible is all about. God is the gospel. And knowing the gospel is to know God and enjoy him forever. That's what we want to share with our neighbours in Yule and Epsom. And we've got we pray, a new year in which to do that in. We've got a new, a new decade that we're just stepping into that we would long to see our church and churches grow in the passion and centrality and conviction that the gospel is central to all we do. And it's why we gather in creche, in Emmanuel Kids, in bumblebees and in church, in life groups and we pray as we share the gospel to the ends of the earth. Because the gospel is good news. That's what Christmas is about. The gospel is good news about what God has done. It's something we we herald, we proclaim, we share. It's not something we understand and just shove under our mattress. It's about what God has done. And that's why I want to look at Isaiah 53 and into 54. When we grasp the gospel at a deep level, it's heart surgery. Now, I wanted to put up a picture of a surgeon, but there's a dynamic in our house when we watch medical dramas that joe can do this she kind of says ooh ah but she enjoys the blood and the scalpel cutting i'm behind the sofa so to speak i put on my masculinity by hiding my face in a cushion i don't want to see anything so um this next slide was gonna have a picture of a of a bloody scene with skillful surgeons doing something but i couldn't bear myself to put it on there and i just in case if you're like me and you're squeamish If you're in the medical profession, forgive me. I'm thankful for the fact that you are not squeamish. But I am. The gospel, when we understand it at a deep level, it's reconstruction of our hearts. It's giving us a new heart, and God, by his spirit, takes his scalpel, sometimes even a sledgehammer, and gives us new vision and new values by his grace. Where do I get that from? Isaiah 54, verse 1. 800 years before the birth of Jesus... God's Holy Spirit takes the quill of Isaiah and he writes this, Sing, sing, O barren woman, you who never bore a child, burst into song, shout for joy. Now we need to stop right there. This is an ancient prophecy, nearly 3,000 years ago. It's written into a time and a culture that we do not understand. It's far removed from our own. But maybe it's not that far removed when we dig a little deeper. Let's put this in a nutshell. Family was everything. Family was everything. It was your security. It was your pension. It was your livelihood. It was the duty of every woman in the ancient Near East to have as many children as they could. If you wanted three children to look after you when you were older, you would have to have eight to ten children when you were younger because so many would die through natural causes, through warfare as well. So your family was absolutely everything. Imagine the scene. There's a women gathering around a well, working hard in the noonday sun, gathering water. And they're saying, one says to the other, well, actually, I only want three children. And another one who has many and another one who has many would say, are you crazy? If you only have three children, that means our tribe will be smaller. That means our protection will be less. 
It's not just about you, it's about us. So having as many children as you could was not just about one family. It was about protection of society. It was about protection of a community in terms of warfare and battle. Eight to ten is the number of children that you would aim to have. They started to have children younger in those days as well, the rest of these ladies. But if you were to have eight to ten children as a woman, you would be a national hero. And that's why we can read, Sing, O barren woman. But notice who the woman is, verse 1. Sing, O barren woman, who never bore a child. How is that possible? Family was everything. Family was everything, and so it was idolatry. Just like the natural tendency of every human heart, my heart is to take a good thing and to make it into a God thing, a good thing and make it into an everything thing, a good thing and make it into a ruling thing. So your family in the ancient Near East was so centrally important about safety, livelihood, pension pots, and managing of the land, all that stuff. But actually, it's so easy in the ancient Near East and even today to make a good thing a God thing. It's the natural tendency of the human heart. And every culture, whether it be the ancient Near East or the 21st century in Leafy Epps Manure, has something, something that we run after, something that we want, something that we're told that we need. And simultaneously, it's an idol in our culture, something that we want to worship, something that we want to own. But actually, at the same time, it's something that can crush us and something that can judge us at the same time. That's how idolatry works. So, uh, in the ancient Near East, it was family, and let's say it's family today. This is how it would work. You have to have an idealised family. You have to provide for it. You have to have uh, two children, not eight or ten, that's too many. That would be greedy and obsessive. But you have to have a certain number of children, and they need to have certain grades in education. Family is everything. That's the modern-day interpretation of family. Say it's career. Career is everything. But what happens if your career is everything and it doesn't go so well? then at the same time, that's used as a measuring stick by, for success, and it's used as a measuring stick to beat you with if you're not successful. See how it works? Every culture has something that we can measure up against, whether it's family or career or status, whether it's fitness or athleisure, um, a $9 billion industry of just wearing stretchy pants and lycra to Audi or Tesco's. Why? To give the impression that you're about to do something athletic. You don't even have to do it, but you want to give that impression, let alone... The only F word that is not acceptable in the English language is to be fat. It's the only unacceptable F word. Every culture has idols and simultaneously they're there to us, for us to measure up against and then at the same time they can be used to judge us against. In the ancient Near East, it was family and there's no way out for someone, verse 1, who was a barren woman. Because they weren't measuring up. They would be crushed. They would be oppressed. There was no pension pot. There was no protection. There was no safeguarding. There was no honouring. They would be looked down upon. But as much as we're to feel crushed in verse 1, notice what he's saying. There is a word of freedom. There's a word of liberty. There's a word of gospel promise. Sing, O barren woman, you who never bore a child, burst into song. Shout for joy, you who were never in labour, because more than all the children of, of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Sing, O barren woman. How is there a gospel promise to someone who is crushed, someone who is getting judged by her uh, fertile friends, someone who is a barren of spirit and emotion and uh, womb as well? And yet here is a message of gospel freedom, of gospel hope. 
Here is a, a way that you can measure up and, and, and be someone of value and beauty and esteemed without children. I can get you to sing without children, says God in 54 verse 1. There is a means of grace by which you cannot be crushed by your culture, whether it be in the ancient Near East or whether it be today. You are going to have more children than someone who has an earthly husband. It's a paradox. You say, what, what is the Bible saying here? What can Isaiah see? Because it doesn't really make sense. God is saying there is a value and a worth. There's a beauty and an honor that is available apart from children. It's not about children. It's not about your womb, whether it functions as society says it should or not. This is so radical. And how is it possible? Because verse 5 says, there is a husband who will love you perfectly. There's a husband who will provide for you eternally. Verse 5, your maker is your husband. This is not about earthly offspring. There is a source of value and strength. There's a source of dignity and honor that is outside of time, that's outside of human construct and culture. You haven't got to try harder. This is a gift of grace. Your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. When every other religion says, try, 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 try as you might, try as, you, as hard as you can, put all your energy and efforts in, and if you do enough, then you will measure up on the last day. God says, no, this is not a status that you need to achieve. This is not a work you need to uh, attain and work hard to get. You can have a positive verdict right in the center of history, and it's by God's grace. And so the image of marriage comes into Isaiah 54. It's not try, 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 and then maybe you'll get married to someone. It says your maker is your husband now. Marriage is one of two images in Isaiah 54. The other one's about a city. But marriage is the first one that we read about. And this is saying, this is saying that you can receive a stasis right now today if you're not a Christian. You can uh, have the Holy One of Israel, you can have the God of all creation, you can have the Redeemer of all of history own you personally. The one who gave up everything for you can come alongside you and by his spirit say, you are mine and I rejoice over you with singing. You can rest in that grace the way you rest in a bed at the end of a long day. When you do that, it changes your identity, it restructures your heart like a surgeon, a divine, a heavenly surgeon. You can enjoy God's grace the way you enjoy cold water in the desert or a can of Coke product placement. A can of Coke well, after you've done loads of exercise and you want to get the sugar rush quickly. A full fat Coke, none of this non-sugar uh, nonsense. The gospel enables you to live freely. That's what the claim of Isaiah 54 says. Your maker is your husband. It's not about whether you have children or not. It's not about whether you succeed. It's not about whether you succeed in career or family or live in the right place or not. It's not if you, about if you flunk your A-levels or GCSEs. What it's about is the fact that today you can have a status and say your maker is your husband. When you get married, it's not like... Uh, well, marriage is a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful picture of love, deep love, like nothing else. But at the same time, it's a wonderful picture of status change. How is it you, you come down an aisle and you're one person, especially if you're especially if you're the lady. You're one person with one name, with one identity, and then something magical and mysterious happens in the marriage process, and you leave with a different name, and you're bound to another person for the rest of your life. 
husband and wife together. It's a remarkable thing. By God's grace, at the start of 2020, you could become a Christian and you could say, my maker is my husband. It's reconstructing your heart and your identity. But how? How does that reconstruction begin? How does that surgery begin? It begins in Isaiah 53 with, with the removal of your sin. With the removal of your sin. Isaiah 53 is, without doubt, the most shocking, the most contested, the most confrontational chapter in the whole of the Old Testament. Loads of ink has been spilt contesting what and who it points to. It's a very controversial passage. been fought over for centuries. It's confrontational and it's shocking because of the violence of the death that's described. This uh, messianic, this, this figure of, of a godly princely king who would come on God's mission. He's there, echoes of him in the, in the book of Exodus. He, he's there with the echo continues in the first few chapters of Isaiah. But then the volume increases from Isaiah 40 through to Isaiah 42, then Isaiah 47, and then Isaiah chapter 50. The volume is increasing like one of those Hans Zimmer-esque kind of undertone, menacing undertone of music in a film score. So that by the time you get to chapter 53, there's a pregnancy to the passage. There's a violence that's described that is absolutely shocking. I mean, how, as you scratch your head, how is God going to end violence with this, this promise? And yet here's a chapter of absolute violence. Look at verse 8. This victim is described by oppression and judgment. He was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. That's a Hebrew phrase for a really ultimately violent death. It's not tragic. It's not accidental. It's violent death. Verse 5 of Isaiah 53. Famous words. He was pierced for our transgressions. That verb means uh, literally this person was run through. Something went into his body from the front and it went through that person's body and it came out the back. It's a violent description. And that's why it's so shocking because it's so violent. Who is this man? And then it's a vicarious, long word. By that I mean someone dying in the place of someone else. Someone saying, I will die for that person. That's what vicarious means. Look at verse 10. Sentence 10. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering. And you're kind of saying, what? If you're a Jewish person reading this 3,000 years ago, that doesn't make sense. I mean, I know we have a sacrificial system. And when someone sins, an animal was brought into the temple and sacrificed their life for the person, the, the, the blood of the animal covers for the guilt of the person. But one thing is absolutely abhorrent. One thing is not allowed. And human sacrifice, that never happens. And yet it's right here. It's a violent death. It's, it's a human dying in the place of someone else. Our punishment has gone to him. His peace has come to us. That's what it says in Isaiah 53. He's a, he's a guilt offering. Is someone dying this violent, bloody death? He's being crushed. He's being oppressed. But it's within the plan of God. Something is entering and going through his body. Human sacrifice. And yet his death is also voluntary. Sentence 4. Verse 4 of Isaiah 53. 
He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Literally, this person picked up our sins and took it upon himself. It's someone carrying a burden. It's not poetry. This is talking about a person. It's not talking about a nation. It's talking about a person. Someone is voluntarily dying a violent death in place of someone else. And upon his shoulders, Isaiah 53 claims, is the sin of the human race. And you're thinking, well, hang on. It's like a riddle. It's not like a was jig. I don't even have a picture. It's not like a Rubik's Cube. I can't do this quickly. I don't understand. And centuries later, there was a man who... <clears throat> this this famous painting depicts an event in Acts chapter 8 in Acts 8 uh, you've got Philip who has a conversation with the Ethiopian eunuch an Ethiopian civil servant you could say the only way for me to understand why an Ethiopian is in Jerusalem is if he is spiritually searching he's spiritually searching and to quote you two he still hasn't found what he's looking for so he gets on his camel or he gets in his, his cart and he's carried by servants, hundreds and hundreds if not thousands of miles, through North Africa, around the Mediterranean. Huge journey, great ex expense, great difficulty, great cost. And then because he's a eunuch, he's ceremonially impure and he gets turned away from the temple in Jerusalem and he's coming back, heartbroken, don't you know who I am, why won't you let me in? Still lost, still confused. And then he meets the missionary Philip a missionary, a missioner of the gospel. And we're told, Philip ran up to the chariot and he heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading, he asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So they stopped the car, they stopped the carriage. The servants put him down and they open the scroll and he begins a wonderful Bible study that solves all the riddles the eunuch was reading, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken from the earth? And just imagine the electricity. You're just longing for Steven Spielberg to put this, to get his hands on this with no CGI, but just tell the truth. Just imagine how the eunuch felt as the text goes on. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about? Is he talking about himself or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Isaiah 53 is describing Jesus. God's own son sent at Christmas, dying for the sins of the world at Easter. He's the answer to all the riddles. He's the answer to the puzzle of Isaiah. The suffering servant, the Son of God, came down from heaven to earth to die for the sins of the world. He took our sins upon his shoulders. He was run through with nails, side cut by a spear. The God of the gospel, the God of Isaiah, the God of the Ethiopian eunuch is infinitely holy so that sin must be dealt with, but he's infinitely loving so that he will take up our sin upon himself and die for us. Grace is not cheap. God's grace is profoundly, eternally costly. And when you see that, that is the fire that melts our hearts. That's the gospel that we come to understand and love and own and want to share. 
This is the surgeon's knife. This is what reconstructs our values and our priorities. God's grace that has power to change your memories. Memories are so powerful, aren't they? I don't dream at all. I sleep like the proverbial log. No night nurse needed for me. But Joe dreams a lot, and a lot of it is to do with memories. Memories are so powerful, aren't they, to uh, wrongly or rightly remember something is a great challenge. But the gospel has power to rework our memories. It has power to change our personality. It has power to change how we look into the world. As we see the God who took up our sins upon him, himself and dies to give us a fresh start and to reunite us with our maker. It affects the way we understand ourselves. It affects the way we go into the world. It affects the way we construct our diary for 2020, doesn't it? What we long for, what we hope for, as we see the costliness of God's grace. This is the gospel that we want to share. This is why we started up a church. This is the gospel that grasps the vision of a whole church called Chesington Evangelical Church. We would not exist without their understanding of the gospel and their generosity and their kindness, their risk-takingness. When everything was looking a bit shaky, they said, go ahead and do it anyway. We'll trust God for you and we trust God to provide for us. And because they understood the gospel at a deep level, they planted a church. 30 people. 30 odd-looking people, including me. But we understood the gospel. We, want to, we don't want to move on from the gospel. We want to understand it more deeply, and we, we must, and we want to share it with all our uh, stumbling words, with all our uh, lack of authenticity sometimes, with all our mistakes. But we still want to share the costliness of God's grace because it's removed my sin from me and your sin from you if you're a Christian. And it can restructure our hearts as our sin is taken from us and placed upon the Lord Jesus Christ for the sins of the world. He died for us 2,000 years ago. And it's in his grace that we live and stand. And that means when it restructures our hearts and our sin is taken from us, it changes our values. It changes our values. Thirdly, as our sin is removed from us in Isaiah 53, these two pictures are in Isaiah 54 of a barren woman singing for joy. God's going to do something to liberate her. God's going to do something to free her. And then you get this picture in sentence 11 and 12 of this, uh, this city. I will rebuild your walls. I'm going to rebuild your gates. I'm going to rebuild your battlements and towers. I will rebuild them out of sapphires and rubies and diamonds. Now, the only way this is possible, if there is a builder with all the resources in human history and in eternity, the only way that this is possible is if enemies, every single enemy has been defeated, because if not, they'd come and nick the riches. As if there's a, an abundance of resources. Politically, that must be secure. It must be a very prosperous time economically. It's a picture of beauty and flourishing. And you think, well, I know Jerusalem was rebuilt at the end of the Old Testament, but it wasn't built like this. It was a pale imitation of the real thing. So what's Isaiah talking about? And if you know your Bible, what's Revelation talking about? It's the same picture. They're talking about what God will yet do in history. Talking about the future, talking about the end of time. Talking about the new creation, where God will renew the world. No disease or death. No poverty or pain. No racism, no injustice. All those things that happen as a result of our sinful rebellion against his loving rule will be undone. And a new world will be created and formed into eternity. 
And how can we be a part of that? When we deserve God's justice, how can we be recipients of his love and his future planning? Through the gospel. Because God loves to deal with barren women. He loves to deal with social outcasts and outsiders, people that embezzle money and then they have a new heart and they give it away. He loves to deal with people that, that go walkabouts for 10 years, that use God's name as a swear word, and then by his grace, he brings them back. God loves to deal with people like that. Someone's put it like this, Christ wins our salvation through losing. He achieves power through weakness. He comes to wealth by giving away everything he owns. Salvation is achieved through weakness. It's received by weak people too. It's a great phrase. In God's weakness, he's dying for the sins of the world on the cross. He looks abandoned. He's naked. He's experienced shame and scorn, but he's doing the most wonderful work of redemption the world has ever seen. Dying in weakness, but God's gospel is received by weak people as well, by weak people like me at 15, making loads of mistakes. Maybe by weak people like you with a different life story. But God's powerful grace is sufficient for each one of us. And when that happens, you get a series of upside-down values. Upside-down values. What do I mean? The gospel creates people with upside-down values. The world will think ill of you. They'll think that you've left your brain at the door. But God's gospel creates a new mindset of upside-down values. Think about uh, race and superiority. Think about money and career. Think about kids and fitness. Think about anything you like, but here are three. Think about people with different color skin from you or a different tone of voice from you. Race or social class. When you understand the gospel, when you get that new heart, you can no longer look down at someone. You can no longer feel superior. You can no longer speak superior. You have a cultural freedom. Whatever culture you come from, that is yours. It no longer needs to bind you when you have a new heart, when your sins are removed from you. You can look at people square in the eye. Don't look up at someone. You don't look down at someone. We're all the same in Christ. Equally sinful, equally redeemed. Think about money. I need money because with money comes power, with money comes freedom of choice. It becomes a thing of approval. Not if you're a Christian, it's just money. You don't need to have a lot of it anymore. That's not where you get your security and significance any longer. It's just money. You can give it away. What about time and priorities? The gospel creates someone who's upside down. Are you going to the gym tonight? No, I'm not going to the gym. I'm doing bumblebees. Are you going to do that tonight? Are you going to play golf tomorrow? No, I'm not going to do that because I'm going to visit so-and-so. They're in, they're in hospital and they're having a really hard time. People will think ill of you if you do not use your time for what they do. If you do not use your time for the priorities of the culture. But if we grasp this, time and money will be something that we can give away generously. How can I not give to God, he who has given me all things? My money is his, my diary is his, my life is his, my next decade, if he spares me, is his. How can I live more passionately for him to the degree I understand the gospel? He's given me everything. There's nothing I can withhold of him. If we grasp this more fully in the next four years, if God spares us, some people may say this, 
Emmanuel, that's a conservative church because all they talk about is Jesus taking their sin upon himself and them living a new life. They, they just love crosslands. They love the women's Bible study. They love gathering at life group and studying what the preacher said or didn't say or should have said. People will look at us and they say, that's a conservative church. No, 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 says someone else. Emmanuel, they're not a conservative church. Actually, they're a liberal church. They're a liberal church. Look at all they talk about caring for people. Look at their commitment to food bank. Look at their commitment to help people in need and buy gloves. Look at their commitment to CAP. Helping people in poverty. Helping people in financial need. That's a liberal church because they help people. They care for people. Oh, no, no, no. That must be a charismatic church, Emmanuel. Because look at all that love and all that singing, that barren woman stuff. I don't mind having any one of those labels. Because look at Isaiah 54 verse 1. It does not say, think. Think, O barren woman. Now you know the truth. Think about it. It says sing. It says take this truth that you know, the gospel truth. May it be a fire in your belly, ballast in your heart. May it be rubbed into your heart like a marinade into a steak like yeast into flour to make dough and bread until it catches fire. Then we'd be conservative, then we'd be charismatic, then we'd be liberal, if by that we mean generous. We'd be all these things because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. Let's pray.